This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Two quick announcements before today's show. First, I have started a fund appeal based on a comment I received from someone who says I would like to access the podcasts too, but I'm deaf. Can you provide transcripts? And I smacked my head. I'd never thought about it. But of course, I should be able to do that. I looked it up and transcripts cost about a dollar a minute. And I know there's software that does it, but it doesn't do it very well. And realistically, the amount of effort that it would take to transcribe all these different voices with the software would be pretty much the same as doing it right the first time with a human being whose job it is to listen to it and get it transcribed properly. So I'm looking for some generous donors who are willing to sponsor a future month of transcripts. And let's just call that 250 bucks, um, give or take. I'll, you know, if it's more than that, I'll cover the, the shortfall. I just can't afford to spend, you know, $3,600, $4,000 a year um, producing these transcripts, much as I would love to. Um, the business just isn't to the place where it's going to support that yet. Or if you'd like to uh, take an individual past episode, uh, something that particularly spoke to you, and that would be, you know, 50 to 75 bucks, depending on the episode length. And let's be clear, it's just the interview itself and not me blabbing on like this at the beginning or the end. Or maybe, maybe you just won the lottery and you would like to fund the entire back catalog, which would be about 12 grand, and the rest of 2017, 2250. So as you may have noticed, this podcast accepts no advertising. I don't do affiliate deals with people who are on the show. I try to keep it very pure and journalistic, so you trust me. But but I'm willing to make an exception for this particularly noble purpose. So if you have a business and you want to sponsor a month or an episode, I'm up for that. I'm up for giving you a thanks in the business, so for your business in the show notes and in the transcript. So that'll... Uh, be out there as long as the transcript is out there and into people's hands. So let me know if you can help. You can just email me, hj at plantyourself.com. Thanks. Second quick announcement, I will be at Health Fest in Marshall, Texas this coming weekend, the the 20-something of of March, or uh, I guess 30th of March to 2nd of April. So if you plan on going, give me a shout out. Let's say hello. Let's, uh, Let's run a race together. Um, I believe there's still tickets available. If you go to healthfest.com, um, I believe if you put in um, code, coupon code plant yourself, you save 10%. Um, but again, I don't do affiliate deals, so I don't see any of that money. So you could put in anybody's code you like or no code at all. Um, but it's a great event. Uh, I've been looking at the speakers, and, I've, and I did an interview with Ed and Amanda Smith of HealthFest and Get Healthy Marshall, and they were amazing and fascinating. So I highly recommend it, and I will be seeing you there. All right, on to today's show. Short introduction here. My guest, Dr. Michael Edelstein, is a psychologist. He's a returning guest, and he is the author of the most excellent self-help book, Three Minute Therapy. And I reached out to Michael after listening to a lecture and reading a book by Dr. Peter Bregan, called Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming Negative Emotions, in which Dr. Bregan basically argued that guilt and shame and anxiety are completely useless emotions that have no place in the world of an adult mind. 
And I was like, yeah, anxiety, I get it. That doesn't seem very helpful. But guilt and shame, aren't they useful? Don't they keep us, aren't, don't they have a, an evolutionary basis to keep us on the straight and narrow, to keep us doing social things rather than antisocial things? Don't, don't guilt and shame stop me from being an asshole? And so I floated this to Dr. Edelstein, and he was like, no, I agree with Dr. Bregan. Guilt and shame are completely useless and counterproductive, and there's much better ways of dealing with the world and dealing with your own shortcomings. So I'm like, okay, let's talk about it. And so we did. So without further ado, Dr. Michael Edelstein, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks, Howard. Thanks for inviting me again. Uh, it was a pleasure the first time, and I was looking forward to this. Well, I have to say that your um, episode is, is one of those that both I and my students and clients refer to again and again um, in terms of sort of nuts and bolts helping people begin to make big changes in their, in their habits and their lifestyles because, you know, it kind of all starts with mindset. So I'm very excited to have you back. Great. Well, thanks for saying that. It's a pleasure. It's, I'm pleased to be able to help people. So before we get into today's topic, let's, um, maybe we can kind of recap, you know, the, the fundamentals and, and what I remember, uh, what I carry with me is this word demands and that almost everything that, um, makes us unhappy or unfulfilled in our life is basically a, some form of mistaking a preference for a demand. First, first of all, am I overstating or is that kind of it? Uh, well, you got the core of it, but it is somewhat of an overstatement because uh, the way I view it is there are appropriate negative emotions. So if we're unhappy, it doesn't necessarily mean we have demands. If we have inappropriate disturbed emotions, that comes from demands by which we mean absolutistic thinking, must, should, supposed tos, have tos demands we put on ourselves, others, and situations. Uh, but uh, barring that, we still have strong preferences. So if I have a strong preference uh, against war, and I look in the Middle East and I see wars going on, uh, it makes sense to be unhappy because my preference is blocked. Uh, but it doesn't make sense to get depressed, miserable, suicidal, homicidal, uh, because my preference is blocked. And the only reason I would have these disturbed emotions is because I do a very human thing, which is escalate my strong preferences into demands. Because I strongly prefer peace, therefore there absolutely must be peace. There shouldn't be any war in the world. People have to treat themselves each other better. This is awful, terrible, and horrible. I can't stand it, and I'm going to be miserable forever. So uh, that's when the appropriate negative emotion becomes an inappropriate, disturbed emotion. So that's a long way of saying some, happy, some unhappiness uh, comes from adverse situations, but other kinds, the disturbed kind, comes from our irrational thinking. Beautiful. Th thanks for that clarification. And how do we know when we've escalated? Like, what are, what are the symptoms? What are the experiential um, you know, indicators that we're not just dealing with a strong or very strong preference, but we've escalated to, do, to a demand? Uh, that's a great question. And the answer is 
there are cognitive, uh, emotive, and behavioral uh, concomitants of disturbed thinking, and the cognitive ones uh, we've already touched on, thinking in terms of demands, musts and shoulds, and global evaluations. So when you start with a demand uh, such as, uh, because I prefer peace, there must be peace everywhere in the world, then that normally leads to a global evaluation, which is, life is awful. I'll never be happy. Everyone's at war. So that's one aspect of disturbed thinking and disturbed emotions. And uh, there are three main uh, core demands that people disturb themselves with. The first is a demand on oneself, because I prefer to do well and get approval, therefore I absolutely must, I have to, and then the global evaluation. And because I failed, I'm a total failure, I'm no good. And that leads to anxiety, depression, and guilt. The second core demand is not a demand on oneself, but rather it's a demand on others. And that takes the form of, because I prefer you treat me fairly, considerately, rationally, lovingly, reciprocally, therefore, uh, therefore you absolutely must, you have to treat me well, and if you don't, you're no good, that's the global evaluation that comes from that, you deserve, sorry, you deserve to roast in hell, and I just appointed myself your roaster. <laughs> so another global evaluation, which leads to anger, resentment, and hostility, and the third area is not a demand on oneself or others, it's a demand on the impersonal uh, conditions of one's life, and that takes the form of life must be fair, easily, easy, hassle-free, peaceful, orderly, and if it's not, then the global evaluation, life is horrible, I'm going to be miserable forever and I can't stand it, and that leads to procrastination and addictions. So if, you're, if you know what you're feeling or how you're acting, that's self-defeating, then you have a good idea of what the must is. If it's anxiety, it's probably the first must. If it's anger, it's probably the second must. And if you're addicted or procrastinating, it's probably the third must. And by the way, last night I gave a talk to a vegan group and we were talking about the third must, people addicted to meat and dairy and candy and things like that. They had the third must because I strongly prefer to satisfy my craving for Belgian chocolate, therefore I absolutely must have some, and I'll be miserable forever if I don't. So that's one hallmark of uh, telling you you have disturbance, you have global evaluations, and you have musts and shoulds. Then there are some emotional uh, hallmarks of disturbed thinking, and that's these emotions that I mentioned, anxiety, depression, anger, jealousy, hurt, uh, resentment, guilt, shame, embarrassment, and we could go on and on because humans are very good at disturbing themselves, so, so there are many disturbed emotions people have. Uh, so if you have one of those emotions, or you're procrastinating or acting addictively, then uh, then it's likely that you have uh, a dis 
disturbed thinking and emotions. Uh, also, uh, obsessing, dwelling, and ruminating tend to accompany disturbed emotions. So if you're uh, thinking of um, a problem again and again and again, obsessing on it in a non-productive way, not in a solution-oriented way, then it's likely you have disturbed emotions and irrational thinking. And then uh, there are behavioral aspects of this, which I mentioned addictions. If you're addicted to alcohol, drugs, gambling, sex, love, shopping, coffee, the internet, and one of the most popular uh, addictions these days, addiction to Facebook. <laughs> I, I have a number of clients who are addicted to Facebook and trying to stop that. Uh, so those are some behavioral aspects of disturbance. Got it. So um, I wanted to talk to you specifically about, I had a lot of questions about um, guilt and shame and anxiety after reading Peter Bregan's book on that topic. But it occurs to me when you're talking about things like peace in the Middle East and imposing demands, that one of the problems with disordered thinking is that it, it's hiding itself in, uh, in righteousness, in, in a desire for, to, you know, for things to be different, for, to, to make an impact, a positive impact on the world. And I, you know, I know a lot of people right now in the United States who are in various states of, of distress over our current political state. And, you know, their, their inner turmoil, their demands that things be otherwise, seem to me to be blocking their taking effective action. How, how, do you, how do you see sort of the, you know, the, the interpersonal and disordered thinking as it intersects with, you know, a, an extreme political situation? Uh, well, you're exactly right that when you have demands, righteousness, anger, those kinds of things, it does tend to block effective action. Um, uh, many years ago, I was living in an apartment building in Brooklyn, and uh, the furnace in Brooklyn, it gets real cold in the winter. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I moved to California. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the furnace would break down a lot in the, in the winter, and people would freeze, not literally, but they'd be freezing <laughs> uh, in their apartments. We all were. And I thought I'd try to take some effective action and uh, go around and collect signatures protesting this and handing it to the superintendent. And so I started knocking on doors and a lot of people were very, very angry about this. They did nothing about it, but they were very, very anger, angry. And I think that consumed some of them and uh, got them nowhere. Uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, the author, said, anger is like burning down your house to get rid of a rat. And I think that's a very nice uh, metaphor for it. Um, now, on the other side, there was Gandhi, and there was a great movie I highly recommend called Gandhi, uh, with starring Ben Kingsley about Gandhi's life. And there was one scene where Gandhi was uh, still in South Africa and he was protesting the uh, requirement for colored people, which they called them to have these 
papers that police could stop them at, at any time on the street and demand their papers. So he was protesting that. And he uh, called for a, a demonstration in the village square in the village he was in. And he said, bring your papers. I'm going to burn them. And people did that, and this got out, and the police showed up on the scene, and Gandhi was burning these papers, and police came over and said they told him to stop, and he just kept calmly throwing these papers into the fire, and they threatened him, and he didn't stop, and then they started beating him. And as he was falling to the ground, he continued feebly to put the papers in the fire. Uh... He didn't seem angry. He just seemed very resolute and passionate about it. About it. And the next day, some of the newspapers had headlines, uh, Gandhi beaten to a pulp by police. And this radicalized a lot of people and got them on Gandhi's side. So uh, this was very effective political action. And if he was angry, if he fought the police, then the headlines might have read Gandhi protesters riot or something like that. Uh, so that's a, a very stark example of how passion, determination, and commitment will get you further than anger and resentment, self-righteousness, those kinds of things. So what do you tell people? I don't know if you have you know, patients, clients right now who are um, affected by the political situation. But it's, you know, it's very, for, for, me, for me, it's very easy to get angry. It's very easy for me to get mean and snarky and enjoy, you know, jibes and, and hateful things that people are sharing on Facebook, sort of, you know, schadenfreude or, or ridicule of the other side. When someone is that worked up and, and angry and upset, and I can feel my own demands rising up, what do we do with it? It's easy to say, be like Gandhi, but what, what's, the, what's the process by which I can get there? Uh, that's a key question, Howard. And uh, the answer is that uh, the first step is, do you want to get over your anger? Because if you don't want to get over it, if you think it's doing you good, which I would dispute, but if you think it's it's acting to help you achieve your goals, then you probably don't want to get over it and you're not going to take the following steps. But if you want to get over it, the first uh, step is to ask yourself, what's my demand? What's my must? What am I telling myself that's creating my anger? And uh, normally it's something like things should be different or these politicians, Trump or whoever they're specifically angry at, shouldn't be the way they are. They should think the way I think, not the way they think. They shouldn't harm people. They have all kinds of godlike demands that things have to be their way. So the first step is to identify that demand and you write it, the uh, most effective way to do it is write it down and then write down a question to question that demand and that's very simple. Let's suppose the demand is Trump should be acting the way I want, not the way he wants. So then you question it, what's the evidence Trump has to act the way I want, not the way he wants. That's a question. And then you look for evidence. Not that you prefer it. Of course, you prefer he see things your way. And not that there are not disadvantages. Of course, there are disadvantages to what he's 
doing according to your goals and your values, but why must he act according to your values and your goals? That's the question. And if you think about it, there are no musts, there are no shoulds, there's never any evidence for demands. There's only one situation which there would be evidence, and that is if you were elected ruler of the universe, then Trump and everyone else would have to do things the way you want them to do, but probably you're not going to be elected this week. Maybe next week, but not this week. So it means facing the fact you don't run the universe, and these were things you could write down in answer to the question, what's the evidence Trump must do things my way or Trump must not harm people or act stupidly? Uh, you would write down answers. There's no evidence Trump absolutely has to do things the way I want him to do them. I don't run the universe. I don't control others or the president or anyone else. Uh, He's a free agent with free will. He'll do what he wants to do, not what I think he should do. I could take concerted action to file a petition for impeachment or other things, but, uh, but getting angry doesn't help and just eats me up inside. Uh, since he's a very imperfect human, I can expect him to act very imperfectly. It's not his... Uh, execrable behavior that causes my anger, but rather it's my unrealistic thinking and demands about it, and I can change my thinking. I can learn to unconditionally accept poor behavior in others, large or small, without eating myself up inside about it, although I'll never like this behavior. I can still have a happy life when other people, even rulers, act badly, although I'd be much happier if they changed their ways. So those are some answers to the question you can write down. And then don't do it just once, but do it again, 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 again. Repetition is the royal road to learning. The more you practice this, the better you get at it. And in my book, Three Minute Therapy, in every chapter, there are 14 chapters, I have examples of these exercises, A, B, C, D, E, F, uh, where A is the activating event, B is the belief, C is the consequence, your anger, uh, D is the question, what's the evidence, things must be otherwise, E is effective new thinking, some of these answers that I mentioned, and then F is a new feeling, which would be great concern, great determination to do something about this, not ripping myself up with anger, resentment, and hostility. I call that a three-minute exercise because once you master it, it just takes a few minutes. But if you practice that every day, writing out your musts, questioning them, contradicting them again and again and again, as long as what you write is meaningful, makes sense to you, and it's the reality, so there's good reason why it will be meaningful then you, your perspective will change because that's how humans work. They look for evidence. Uh, the way we try to help people get onto the vegan track is by showing them evidence that a plant-rich diet is healthier than a plant-poor diet. Uh, and we have compiled many, many studies indicating this. So, And then when people read that and they see evidence for a different way of thinking and acting, 
then they change their beliefs and change their behaviors. And it's the same with you as an individual. You can change your beliefs and behaviors by changing your thinking through showing yourself the evidence against your musts and shoulds again and again and again and keeping at it. And for, so from your perspective, the, so the, there's a clear benefit to the individual for not eating themselves up in, with, with anger, but there's also a benefit to the movement that they espouse and want to be part of. It seems like if someone is not eating themselves up, if they're not carrying around these musts and shoulds and demands, that they're going to be much more effective and efficient in their action with a lot less collateral damage and maybe even blowback from the other side they're trying to influence. Yes, that's exactly right, Howard. And not only from their other side, but from their own side. And I've worked with people in different political movements, and I'm in a political movement myself, and, there's a, and I've given talks called How to Avoid uh, Feuding and Dissension in Your Political Mute Movement, and people have musts and shoulds about their uh, colleagues, that ev different people have different activist strategies, for example, and if you have a must or should, they should see it my way and see that the political action that I recommend is the right way. And then there's feuding and dissension and people and burnout uh, and that leads to a less effective movement. So not only is it against your opponents, but it's against your colleagues that this anger can be focused and lead to poor results. Beautiful, beautiful. So for, for, for those of us in, uh, who, who see ourselves as part of a, a resistance, an alternative to where we think the country's going, uh, three-minute therapy is actually an, a really good actionable guidebook. We don't need uh, necessarily you know, a list of a thousand things to do um, if we're doing them all in, in sort of sloppy, angry ways. Right. This is kind of a this is kind of the, you know, our daily calisthenics, m mental calisthenics, so that in whatever um, way we want to participate in in uh, social discourse, we can do it cleanly and if, as effectively as possible. Yes, and I like your analogy to calisthenics. I use a different one in my book, an analogy to brushing your teeth. If you don't want to have any cavities, if you don't want to have bad breath. You brush your teeth every day. It's a daily ritual because you know if you stop, the plaque and bacteria will slowly start creeping back in. So it's the same with uprooting your demands. You do that on a regular basis, daily or every other day or on some kind of regular basis, and you keep doing it. It's As you're saying, it's a simple process, just questioning your musts and shoulds and contradicting them. And... Uh, it uh, has, although it's a simple process, it has profound ramifications for many parts of your life. Beautiful. So, so now um, I'd love to shift into my own uh, inquiries into guilt and shame and anxiety. So, and I, I got, as I said, I got to thinking about this from reading Peter Bregan's book, Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety, and he referred to all of these as negative legacy emotions and stated categorically that they have no place in the life, uh, in the emotional life of a mature adult human. 
And that kind of threw me because I've always assumed that, you know, guilt and shame have useful evolutionary um, roots and that if someone is doing something bad they sh- and they feel guilt or shame for it, that that's kind of a useful control if, you know, as opposed to needing to be someone else to be looking at them all the time. So it, it kind of shook me to think that specifically shame and, and guilt, feelings we get when we don't live up to something, it's like it's basically how I would define it to myself. Like we wouldn't want those because I would be afraid that without them, we would not behave well. So uh, I'll throw that to you and, and love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, I have a number of things there to comment on. One is uh, the basic error feelings we get. We don't just get feelings. They don't come from situations. They don't arise out of the blue, but it's feelings we create ourselves. Uh, So guilt, shame, anxiety are feelings we create ourselves. And uh, that's a powerful notion because if you create these feelings and if they're negative legacy emotions, which I'll try to make the case for also along with Peter, uh, then, then you have the power to change that. Uh, so if you create these feelings, you can uncreate them. And in terms of it being a useful control, Howard, as I was saying, guilt, shame, anxiety, and all these other disturbed emotions arise from preferences. So you have a strong preference. Uh, let's suppose you eat, you're a vegan and you eat some meat and you feel guilty about it. Uh, the reason you feel guilty is because first you have a strong preference to eat healthfully and, uh, and then you feel concerned, disappointed, uncomfortable, frustrated about having, um, not complied with your goal to eat healthfully. So you have those appropriate negative emotions and negative emotion, appropriate negative emotions could be rather strong if you have a strong preference. But then when you escalate that, because it would have been preferable not to eat the meat, therefore I absolutely must not, I should not, I'm a worthless failure because I did, then you create guilt. So without the must, without the self-blaming and self-condemnation and those global evaluations, you would still have very strong concern and passion to do the right thing rather than guilt. So, uh, so you have appropriate negative emotions rather than these inappropriate ones that don't help. And we've been outlining how they don't help. And I'm sure, uh, as a vegan yourself, uh, an author, I'm sure you've met many people who have switched from meat eating to a plant rich diet, who've done that without guilt, shame, and anxiety. They've done it because They were determined to live a healthy life and determined to eat healthful foods. Uh, And then in terms of the evolutionary purpose, I would agree with you. It could be, not necessarily, but it could be at some point that guilt had uh, evolutionary adaptive benefits. And one could be that a million years ago when uh, humans' brains were being formed, uh, they didn't have the uh, specific, the brains didn't have the specificity to uh, distinguish um, 
instances of right behavior from overgeneralizations. Uh, so uh, guilt comes from an overgeneralization. Because I prefer to do well in situations, because they have advantages to do well and disadvantages if I don't, therefore, therefore I absolutely must. So if they weren't able to differentiate between a preference and a must, and the must kept them alive, uh, because at that time it was somewhat functional, then it could have developed that way. Can, so can, you, give, can you give an example of that? Because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around it. I'm not quite following. Okay, thanks for asking. And uh, one example would be, let's suppose uh, a million years ago, um, there was a rustling in the trees and you had an overgeneralization. I know it's a saber-toothed tiger about to pounce. I better get out of here. And it wasn't. It was just the wind. Well, you'll survive. But let's suppose you're more of a modern thinker and you think there's a rustling in the trees. Is it a saber-toothed tiger? Is it a wind? Let me look around and see what's exactly going on. It might be too late. So if you have a false positive, you're going to survive. But if you have a false negative, you're not. Uh, so so uh, you won't survive to proliferate your genes. So, so that would be one example. So Another, how does how does that work in terms of uh, say guilt or shame or anxiety that that you would that feeling those even if they were inappropriate most of the time would still lead to maybe false positives and survival. Well, that was a, that was an example of anxiety because if you have a must and that tends to make you anxious. Uh, but again, with guilt, if you have guilt and you don't have the option because of your uh, undeveloped brain. If you don't have the option of feeling great concern, which is a more subtle kind of differenti differentiated emotion, then you might not act in, in proper ways. But these days we can differentiate and we can, and because of the disadvantages of guilt which, and other disturbed emotions, which we've been discussing, you're much more effective with great concern, great determination, great passion about doing better rather than guilt, which also leads to self-blame, self-condemnation, and often thinking, I'm a total failure, I can't do any better, so I might as well just indulge myself with the unhealthy food. Mm. So, so guilt as, and, uh, and shame in that case, a sort of over-the-top inappropriate emotions, are, are essentially disempowering us. Yes, that's a very good way to describe it. They're disempowering rather than preferences and determination, which is empowering. Okay. So, but if, I, if I'm a, a vegan and, you know, you talked about, you know, the healthy way to do it is to think about the health effects on your body. I know a lot of vegans who really couldn't care less about their own health. Um, they, they would tell you in a second that they're doing it entirely for the animals and so if someone like that, you know, gets a little bit drunk and has some chicken wings and then goes home, um, they, you know, they are likely to feel a, a lot of guilt in, in my experience based on the strength of their preference um, and, their, and their sense that any human consumption of animal foods is just categorically wrong and awful and evil. No, well, I, I disagree that they're going to feel guilt based 
on their preference, they're going to feel guilt based on their demand. Their preference wouldn't lead them to feel guilt and put themselves down because preferences are not absolute. Preferences are in reality. They look at the advantages and disadvantages. And if they were thinking rationally, and we can understand why they, they may not be because they're human and humans often don't think rationally. But if they were thinking rationally the next morning, they would say, I strongly prefer not to have the chicken wings. It was a big mistake. I'll, what could I do in the future to avoid that? And then they could come up with some strategies, tools, techniques to avoid chicken wings in the future. And I work with people who have addictions and I teach them all kinds of uh, techniques they can use to avoid acting addictively. Um, so their, their guilt, so the first thing for them to see is their guilt is based on their must, irrational, illogical, unempirical thinking, not on their strong preference, and therefore the issue is uproot your must and act on your strong preference. Okay. So that suddenly brings up in my mind the the dynamic that I often see, and I don't, I don't want to generalize, but I often see in vegan advocacy, which is pretty overtly an attempt to make other people feel guilty about their own meat eating from, you know, the pictures, from the movies, from the statistics that, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it feels like very often a desire to induce guilt and shame in people who aren't yet as enlightened as we are. And I'm wondering is if that's, if that's a flip side and, and if it is driven by a desire to make other people feel ashamed and guilty, if you think it's doomed to, to fail or backfire. Well, we don't know what's in let's take forks over knives, which is a very good movie along these lines to educate people. And we don't know what's in the minds of the, uh, producers of forks over knives, whether their goal was to make people feel guilty or just educate the people. Now, I agree with you. Certainly some people want others to feel guilty. Some may believe that that's an effective motivator and others think they deserve to be punished because they're eating unhealthily and I'm going to punish them by making them feel guilty. So that could be in their minds also. But uh, I think the beneficial aspect of these pictures, movies, and statistics is the educational part to show people that the evidence heavily falls on the weight of a vegan-rich diet for health rather than uh, otherwise. So, uh, so uh, uh, that's why I think that these pictures, movies, statistics, books are effective because people get educated. I've converted a number of people to veganism just by giving them a book or acting as a role model, and then they get educated. I didn't have the sense that they felt guilty about it. Right. And I have to say, for the record, I consider, <clears throat> excuse me, forks over knives to be at the far extreme end of non-judgmental. In, in the movement in terms of, you know, the, the, really the focus was on scientific discovery and how it played out in people's lives. Um, so, and I think that's one of the reasons that when you go to a lot of vegan festivals and health fests and you ask people, how did you first hear about this? That about 90% of their hands go up when you ask, you know, who saw forks over knives and that caused you to first change. I think that's, uh, that's one of the qualities, maybe an, over, an overlooked quality of of that 
advocacy is that it, it does not come across as judgmental. Right. Now, there's another movie which I thought was very good, which I think is at the other end of the continuum. It's largely emotional, I thought, and it's called Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. Are you familiar with that one, Howard? Yep. Joe Cross. I saw that. Yeah. And it's largely an inspirational kind of movie. And then it shows him going around to different groups and uh, explaining his thing about fat, sick, and nearly dead and juicing things and avoiding animal products. And he makes a lot of converts. Again, I don't see guilt playing a large part in it. I see enthusiastic people who, who want to be more healthy and uh, want to lose a lot of weight like he did. Uh, so I don't know uh, how much guilt plays a role in this. Uh, also, when someone sees that they're acting poorly, self-defeatingly, and they see a better way, if they do make themselves guilty or ashamed or anxious, this is a disturbance. It's, I don't think it's anything that we want to reinforce. And it shows that they have disturbed thinking. They're not thinking very reasonably. Uh, so I wouldn't use them, hold up them as a role model for, uh, how to think or how to get people to change their behavior. Mm. I guess what, one of the obstacles is that if you're going to give up your guilt and your shame, that, that, so that you can feel defenseless, that you feel like without those, I would simply not be a good person, right? Is there... You know, is, is that a form of, of, of disordered thinking that, uh, you know, if you work with people and you explain to them that guilt and shame are, are optional and unhelpful, do you ever have people who, who fight back and they want to cling to it as a, as a kind of moral compass without which they would be lost? Uh, not very much, but uh, I'm not uh, representative of the average person for a few reasons. One is people come to me with their guilt and shame because they want to get over it. If they thought it was great, they wouldn't come to my office. <laughs> good point. And, uh, what's that? I said good point. Yeah. And then secondly, I've been doing this for 40 years, uh, showing people how their guilt, shame, and anxiety is doing them in, and I have very good arguments against it, so I'm very good at it. So uh, that's another reason why... Uh, I'd be more effective than the average person. Uh, as far as someone feeling defenseless, uh, well, I think it's the opposite. When they get over their guilt and shame, not by squelching it, that's the wrong way to get over it, I won't allow myself to feel guilt and shame, but by changing, uprooting the fundamental cause of it, changing their thinking, reinforcing their strong preferences, and uh, abolishing their demands, then they're they're not defenseless at all because they have very strong weapons uh, against the problems in their life and, and ways to work on it. Uh, also, in terms of the idea of I would not be a good person, that's another major error that people make that I explain to my clients, have written on in my book, Three Minute Therapy, I have a chapter on and give talks on, and uh, it's a self-esteem trap, and that is... And that comes from the global evaluation from the first demand. I must do well and get approval or else I'm no good. So these people who uh, would not feel good if they didn't feel guilty are saying, A, I must feel guilty to be a good person. 
but uh, a good person is another one of those overgeneralizations. It comes from rating your total self based on the rating of your behavior. So it makes sense to rate your behavior. I did poorly last night when I ate the chicken wings. How could I do better in the future? But it makes no sense to say, because I did poorly last night eating the chicken wings, therefore I'm a totally bad person. I'm no good. I'm a failure. That's an overgeneralization. There's no evidence that you turn into a failure because you fail at things. If, if that were the case, we'd all be walking around failures <laughs> because we all fail at things a lot. Uh, so I help them abolish the idea of being a good person or a bad person. Whether you do well or poorly or people like you or dislike you, you're still the same imperfect human who acts imperfectly, who's going to do well and poorly at times, is going to be liked and disliked at times. And if you come to that uh, realization, that's called unconditional self-acceptance, USA, unconditional self-acceptance, accepting yourself unconditionally as a fallible human you are, whether you eat chicken wings or not, and the issue is how can you do better, not how you can be a better person or rate your personhood, your being, your essence as good. Mm. That's really powerful. And, you know, what, 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 what comes to me is this word power, that when you are, uh, when, when you feel powerful, you don't need, you don't feel like you need guilt or shame to keep yourself in line. And I think, you know, I, th I think we live in a culture in which we get the message that we're not powerful, that if you're addicted, you have no control over the food. You have to go to a separate tent at the reunion. You can't look at it. You can't take a drop of the, of the liquid that that the that it's you know biochemical physiological it's a disease and of course when something's a disease it's no longer your responsibility um what what are your thoughts on on sort of the, the kind of addiction model of uh, you know of that that sort of main mainstream is that is that actually getting in the way of our um you know manifesting free will uh, well, I think it's certainly getting in the way of uh, getting over an addiction. And what you're describing there, Howard, is really basically comes from the 12-step model, which has been uh, started in the 30s, 1930s, and has been uh, very popular ever since. And they have these 12 steps. And the first one is, I'm, I admit I'm powerless over alcohol or I'm powerless over my addiction. And that's powerless rather than powerfulness and uh, that's obvious fiction that you're powerless over your addiction because if you were powerless over the alcohol or the chicken wings uh, that means it knocked you down it poured itself down your throat and forced you to drink it uh, then you could say you're powerless or maybe someone uh, with a gun says drink the alcohol or I'll shoot then you could make the case you're powerless but that's not the case. The case is you're powerful. You're the one who decided to eat the chicken wings or you're the one who decided to drink the alcohol. So you have the power to choose to do it. So you have the power to choose not to do it. And I've worked with people who have gone to AA and they've said, 
I use that as an excuse to drink. I'm powerless over the alcohol, and I need a higher power to, uh, to help me. So, of course, I'll drink. Also, in terms of the disease model, um, I, the evidence is that most of our personality traits, whether they're disturbed traits or healthy traits, have a large genetic influence about, in general, depends on the trait, but in general, about 50% of uh, the influence in our personality comes from our genetic predispositions. They're just dispositions and influences, they're not causes, and you can work against your genetic predispositions. We do so all the time. So uh, it's, not a, it's not a disease in the conventional sense of defining disease. You can't get over a disease by changing your thinking. And uh, normally you don't have fever and achiness when you're addicted to chicken wings. Mm-hmm. So it's not a disease of that type. But is, it is a genetically related problem. But uh, it's not, uh, genetics isn't, uh, doesn't determine your behavior, just influence it so you can change it. Another way of looking at this, if you're not going to buy into my interactionist model of genetics, environment, and your own thinking, is if it is a disease, the solution is stop drinking or stop eating the chicken wings. And if it's not a disease, the solution is stop drinking or stop eating the, the <laughs> the chicken wings. So the solution is the same either case. So if you want to get over an addiction, whether it's a disease or not, is sort of a interesting intellectual discussion or scientific discussion, but it's not terribly relevant to uh, improving your behavior. <laughs> That's very elegant. So, so it, it occurs to me that maybe what my hang up about Peter Bregan's book was kind of linguistic. Because I was, I was being very, very broad and vague and blunt in my use of the words guilt and shame. Um, and that there are appropriate negative emotions that, that I was just lumping together. Is, um... uh, yes, I think that's a very good diagnosis of what was going on in your thinking and what goes on in most people's thinking. They lump together strong concern and determination with uh, anxiety, depression, and anger. And sometimes they think, well, uh, concern and determination, sorrow, regret, those are weak emotions. And anger, that's a strong emotion, or depression is a strong emotion. But uh, preferences could be very strong and very passionate and lead to strong emotions. Uh, For example, I gave the example of Gandhi and his passion, Another clear example is a loved one dies and you mourn, you grieve, you cry uh, at the loss and it doesn't mean you're uh, disturbed or suicidal or depressed. You might be, but that would be a mistake. But you could just have a very, very strong, passionate preference not to lose your loved one and rightly conclude it is very sad, highly disadvantageous that it happened. And this leads to these strong, appropriate negative emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something about the phrase, you know, highly disadvantageous that feels sort of a mismatch with the emotion. It, uh, you know, I, I, I hear it, but it, it, it almost feels like I'd rather, I'd rather think of myself as a person who is, um, 
you know, overwhelmed with with grief and maybe rage at the universe than to be sort of like an accountant and say, well, that was a highly disadvantageous occurrence. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. But if you uh, define something as highly disadvantageous, very bad, very sad, regretful, uh, disappointing and frustrating, that's what leads to emotions. Emotions come from evaluations. And deciding that something is disadvantageous implies you don't want disadvantages. So your evaluation is this is bad, and that leads to emotions. So uh, it may it may seem on the surface that it comes uh, it's not emotional, just scientific or statistical, but it's these evaluations is what leads to emotions, and it's really much more than facts. But it's these values we attach. To facts. By the way, that leads that reminds me of a another myth people have about stoicism. The common understanding of stoicism means you're not emotional. Bad things happen, you have no emotions. But that's a misunderstanding of stoicism. Stoics were emotional and they had a strong emotions. Uh, in fact, there's a book called uh, the A Guide to the Good Life. The Art of Stoic Joy. And what the author shows is that uh, if you're Stoic, which means largely acceptance, unconditional acceptance of yourself, others, and the universe, then you can have great joy because you don't dampen it with depression, anxiety, guilt, and shame. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so what you're expressing is a common misunderstanding, and it's good to reevaluate that. Is, is it useful to um, to define guilt versus shame? Because uh, you know, anxiety I know feel to me feels very very different. It feels like a very very clearly different experience. But I get confused about guilt and shame. Is it worth it to 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 talk about how they're different, or does the A B C D E F model simply take care of it? And it's and, and it's just. Uh, you know, well, intellectual wheel spinning to, to provide definitions. It's, it's worth it if you're interested in the distinction. Uh, but in terms of getting over it, it's not that important. But uh, the way I look at it is guilt is uh, wrongdoing in your own eyes. I acted, I ate the chicken wings. I did wrong. I'm a bad person. That's guilt. Shame is uh, acting poorly in other people's eyes and then uh, using that against yourself. I ate the chicken wings and I, all these vegans knew about it, they're disapproving of me, that's shameful, and I must not be disapproved of, I'm a bad person. So that's uh, one way you can look at the distinction. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, so it, it sounds like in, in either case, we don't have to overcomplicate it. That the, uh, the solution is to find the, find the demand, the should, the must, and then argue with it. Exactly. Debate it and contradict it. See that it's false. And if you decide there's evidence for you must and should, your thinking is off because all demands are fictions. They lead to emotional disturbance and behavioral disturbance. They don't do you any good. They're fictions. Uh, now, you could say there's conditional must, which sort of complicates the issue. You could say, in order to get to the airport on time to catch my flight, I must leave a half hour earlier. Mm. So that's uh, a must. Uh, that's a conditional must. It's a much a must of 
prediction, if then, uh, if I want X, then I must do Y. But you could say, if I want X, then it's strongly preferable that I do Y. Uh, but So I talk about psychopathological musts and shoulds, and you know whether it's one or the other, because if you feel anxious about getting to the airport on time, then you have a psychopathological must or should, an absolutistic one that's leading to global evaluations. But if you're just determined, then I would translate that into saying, I strongly prefer to get to the airport on time, but uh, if I'm late, I'm late. And by the way, there's no reason in the absolutistic sense why you, even without the emotional disturbance, why you must get to the airport on time to get your plane, uh, because sometimes you get to the airport and the plane's delayed and you get it anyway. So it's not it's not an, an absolute, uh, and there are always options. And I've missed planes in the past, and I'm still here today talking to you. So obviously exactly. the, the world didn't end. Ex excellent point. Although, although I thought it was at the time. <laughs> That's right, because you told yourself it was, and you could change your thinking. Beautiful. Well, I see we're almost at the top of the hour, and I know you have a, a, a very busy practice schedule. So I just want, I want to thank you again, um, partly for the new stuff, and partly, as you say, repetition is the royal road to learning, partly for reminding me again of the basis of, of the way you look at the world and the way you empower people to move through it gracefully and happily and... Uh, and, and with as much joy and as little unnecessary suffering as possible. Well, thank you so much, Howard. It's delightful speaking with you. You ask essential key questions and interesting ones. And in parting, I'd just like to say, as I mentioned, I have a book where you can read all the details of my approach called Three Minute Therapy. Three is spelled out. And I have a website, threeminutetherapy.com. And I have many YouTubes uh, discussing this. Uh, previous one with Howard and uh, many others. Uh, and I base everything I discussed here on the work of Albert Ellis, who was a psych psychology genius of the 20th century. And he's written over 80 books and also has YouTubes, Ellis, E-L-L-I-S. So he's another great source for these ideas. Right. And if people and absolutely get the book, anyone who's listening to this, who uh, who if you've ever had a negative thought in your life that distressed you, three minute therapy is the 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 best, quickest, most clearly written guidebook for dealing with it and getting rid of it. I I recommend it unconditionally. And um, if people want to work with you one on one, you do Skype, right? I do phone, Skype, and in-person sessions. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, but I have many Skype clients, some in other countries, uh, so that's always a possibility. Right, and they can find you through that same website, three spelled out, threeminutetherapy.com? Yes, and my phone number, email address is on there. Uh, so if you have any questions please feel free to email me or call me. I'll be happy to answer your questions. I love discussing this, and I love helping people with it. All right. Dr. Michael Edelstein, thank you so much once again for being on the Plant Yourself podcast and for being a, a personal guide and mentor of mine. Oh, thank you, Howard. And thanks again for uh, having this show. All right. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. 
And for more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episodes with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 203. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 202 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not my weekly-ish email newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up for that and get the Beat the Bully Report at plantyourself.com slash bully. What's the Beat the Bully Report? It's, you know that voice where you start doing something really good, like you start exercising or you, you eat really well for a week or two or even a month or two, and then you hear this voice in your head that goes, yeah, you've tried this before. Yeah, it didn't end well. You did it for a while. It was just like this. You felt so good. You felt so optimistic, but then it all fell apart. You're always going to fail at this. Things are never going to change. Yeah, that's the bully. And the bully was my constant companion for many, many years as I tried to make meaningful shifts in my life. And over the course of time, I learned tricks, techniques, strategies, tactics to beat the bully. And I've shared them in a report called Beat the Bully. And you can get that at plantyourself.com bully. And when you do, you'll also receive a complimentary subscription. I love when people say that. A complimentary subscription to my marketing rag. No, it's a good magazine. It's a good e-newsletter with lots of articles, links to podcast episodes. And yes, the occasional me suggesting that you give me money so that I can keep doing this. Okay. Let's talk about our sponsors. Big thanks to Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Klinovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Fedmel, Victoria Dolmanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stuhl, Dolnick, Sarah, Sturkis, Rundwitz, Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham. <gasps> For your generous support of the podcast, and thanks also to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music over his website, willridenauer.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media and via email. You could write a review on iTunes. I haven't had a new review since March 8th. And today's the 27th, so it's getting kind of lonely out here in iTunes review land. Uh, the other thing you can do is send some cash my way. You can become a patron of the show with a one-time gift or an ongoing contribution over at plantyourself.com on the right sidebar. Or as I mentioned at the top of the show, you can email me hj at plantyourself.com and become a sponsor of a transcript or a month of transcripts or a year of transcripts or an entire archive of transcripts so that people who are hearing impaired or deaf can also benefit from this show. In garden news, we've got some new beds around the house. They're not actually like food garden. Um, my wife now works at a garden center where she gets these amazing plants. It's called Niche Gardens. It's in Chapel Hill, and they apparently are nation nationally famous for some of the stuff they have. So uh, I got to work pulling out hollies and other bushes and non-native things right around the house, and we're putting in these beautiful plants that are apparently just sort of beautiful, but, um, you know, I like function. <laughs> And I'm a little bit colorblind, so I think of them as nectary and pest confusers, sort of plants that are going to help the whole biosystem, and which will in turn help me produce more food in the garden this summer. In running news, man, that marathon last week really kicked my ass. I am still nowhere near back to shape. I went for my first run yesterday with Geo. It was six miles, and I averaged about 10 minutes a mile. 
And after that, I played an ultimate practice for our, uh, our 50 plus aged group ultimate team down here. And man, I was dragging. So this next weekend in Marshall, Texas, I'm participating in the 10K running with, with Josh and Garth and, and a whole bunch of other people who are probably going to kick my butt. And so that will be fun. And in, in uh, two weeks after that, I'm going down to hang with Josh again. Uh, we're going to talk uh, business world domination, that sort of thing. And I'm going to run with him or far behind him in the Crescent City Classic 10K. So that's the race that I'm really trying to get to, uh, you know, 45 to 47 minutes, um, which right now feels highly improbable given the uh, the barking Rottweilers of my calves, as, as Josh puts it. That, that's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>